when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. In this special episode, we're going to be discussing the day after Brexit. The EU referendum remains very close, but what might happen to Britain if on June the 24th we vote to leave the EU? So I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's finest editors to take us into this imaginary future. Economics editor Chris Giles, political editor George Parker, business editor Sarah Gordon, and our news editor and former Brussels Bureau Chief Peter Spiegel. Thank you all for joining. So let's cast our minds to June the 24th, 2016. The sun is rising over the River Thames and we gaze out from our newsroom on Southwark Bridge to look at a new world. The opinion polls were right, the results are close, but it's clear that Britain has just voted to leave the EU. What happens next? So Chris Giles, I'm going to begin with you. What would happen to the British economy straight after Brexit? Well, straight after Brexit, it's all about markets. And we know there'll be big market movements because we can see already that, in particular, sterling is very linked to the opinion polls. If the opinion polls suggest a leave vote, sterling falls and vice versa. So if we had left the EU on June the 24th, we'd expect a very sharp fall in sterling. Most people are thinking about 10 to 20 percent. And then other turmoil in other financial markets, probably not in gilt because a lot of people think the Bank of England will cut rates and we're not going to see a risk premium there. But in other sort of proxy markets, whether it might be bank shares, if people are worried about bank funding or anywhere else, the thing that might cause a big problem, because sterling falling a lot actually doesn't cause a huge problem for the economy, certainly not in the short term, is something unexpected that means that business decisions change. And that's what happened in 2008. That's what we would need to look for. So markets day one, end of the month, sort of in July, surveys of businesses, consumers, footfall in shops, August, beginning to see economic data. Then we really, to see if we are going into a recession or not, we have to wait till October for the Q3 figures. And to know it's a real recession, if there is one, it's till January. So it's a whole process of lots of different data coming out, starting with financial markets. You can breathe a sigh of relief, say it's all fine if nothing happens by January. George Parker, what would be the immediate reaction in Westminster? There's been a lot of talk about whether David Cameron would resign and resolve for Brexit vote. Is that likely to happen? And what would the general political landscape look the morning after Brexit? Well, from David Cameron's point of view, it will look very bleak indeed. I mean, David Cameron has said that he wouldn't resign as prime minister if he lost this referendum. I frankly think that's completely implausible. You know, he has voluntarily put Britain's future in the world at stake in this referendum. He didn't have to do it. He's made the case for many, many months, warning about the economic disaster that might unfold and the national security implications of the Brexit vote. And if the country ignores his warnings and goes for it, I can't see for a second that David Cameron would stay on for the remaining three or four years of his premiership to negotiate an exit from an organisation he was trying to keep Britain in. So I think on the morning of June the 24th, David Cameron would announce his decision to resign as Prime Minister. That would then trigger a Tory leadership contest, which could take two or three months to play out. I'd imagine that David Cameron would say, I will stay 
in number 10 for that period, of course, because we'll be talking about the instability and the economic turmoil that could come about after this vote. So I think he would stay there for the time being while the party chose a new leader. But I think things will move very, very quickly. George Osborne has to go as well. Good point, yes. I think George Osborne is so intricately tied to the Prime Minister on this. His whole economic strategy would be destroyed by a Brexit vote, and I think he would go as well. What about Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader as well? Now, he's sort of campaigned for in, but would his position be at risk at all? No, not at all. I don't think anyone could claim that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has campaigned enthusiastically <laughs> for Britain to stay in the European Union. In fact, many people have hardly have noticed that he was campaigning for that outcome at all. I don't think there'll be any pressure on Jeremy Corbyn. Jer- the question is whether Jeremy Corbyn could then exploit the turmoil in the Conservative Party. Well, Sarah Gordon, that's all a slightly depressing picture here. What about businesses? Would that be any happier? How would businesses react to a Leave vote? Well, I mean, the short answer is on the 24th of June, there will be no direct impact on business at all. And, and they won't do anything differently. I mean, the longer term impacts, of course, are potentially much more severe and in some cases serious. But I think what worries me is that in our reporting, it does appear that still a number of boards and a number of executive committees have not done much contingency planning for what they do on the morning of June the 24th and, and you know even very major clients of big law firms have been telling their lawyers look frankly it's so impossible to predict number one the outcome of the vote let alone what happens after a vote to leave that we're not going to engage in detailed planning. Now I think that has some significant dangers because on the morning of June the 24th if you are a shareholder or indeed in some cases if you are a regulator you are going to be going to your companies and saying right what's plan B, what are you going to do now, how are your operations going to be affected and you need to have, you really do need to have a pretty detailed response to that question. I think there are relatively superficial questions that all goods and services companies can answer and of course if you are a bank or in financial services you will have done on the whole very detailed contingency planning because of course the potential loss of a passport to do business from London with the rest of the EU is something that many banks in particular are deeply concerned about and in fact somebody told me yesterday that banks have got war rooms planned starting the night of the 23rd to go through into the 24th and onwards you know literally you know war room staffed with how to react to engage in Mm. direct operations over the bank. That sounds like how Peter's got the FT newsroom planned for after the referendum. Just on that quick point Sarah has any of that planning changed in recent weeks because I think there's certainly been a sense whether it's right or not we'll come to later that Brexit is possible if not likely. Yes, I think the narrowing in the polls certainly recently has led to a flurry of inquiries from companies to their advisers as to what they should be doing to prepare. I think it has sharpened minds. I mean, survey after survey showed that there was complacency really about what the impact of even a leave vote would be with a lot of boards and a lot of executive committees saying they don't believe there'll be much of an impact on their operations. And I think that risks being over sanguine. Yeah. Peter Spiegel, what would be the noises from Brussels the morning after Brexit that it's going to be an interesting thing to see that they've generally not said much about this referendum on purpose? I think David Cameron has said them, please don't get too involved. And we've seen the odd comments from Angela Merkel. But what would be their immediate reaction? I think you'd have sort of two dynamics. You'd have the Brussels dynamics and then you'd have the broader European dynamic. And I I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. There, There clearly is already talking. And I was in Brussels just two, three weeks ago and talking to people about this, about trying to pull together and show some sort of initiative that Britain is a one-off, sort of a further integration process. Now, whether that is through the Eurozone in particular, because they have always plans in place to do further Eurozone integration, or the rest of the 28 remaining members, they haven't quite decided what it is yet, but there is going to be an effort 
in Brussels, in Berlin, in Paris to show that Britain is a one-off. We were going to pull together and show no one else is going to leave. The problem is that's all well and good from the leadership in Brussels, but you have various regions, Scandinavia in particular, Eastern Europe as well, where you get an impetus in the other direction, where this gives sort of impetus to some of these populist parties, Denmark, Sweden, both of them doing very well right now, two parties where they have the Swedish Democrats and the, and the Danish People's Party. They are also now pushing for their own renegotiation with Brussels. You have the Poles, the Hungarians, the Slovaks getting ideas on their own referendums. So suddenly you get the North and the East in particular, the, the periphery, in other words. And I've talked to you know former Swedish prime ministers who have said you have a block suddenly, Norway, you have Britain, you have you know Iceland, you have Switzerland. Suddenly this begins to look like a pre-1975 northern bloc where maybe this is an alternative to join instead of the EU. So I think there's a lot of nervousness. One last point on this, though. It's not just the periphery. You have Gert Wilders, who is the populist leader in the Netherlands, who is now first in every opinion poll. He is asking for his own referendum. You have Marine Le Pen in France. Again, she's in first place in most presidential opinion polling right now. She's asking for her own referendum. So it's not just the periphery. It's the core as well now where you see a potential knock-on effect Everyone else is going to start copying Britain and, and try to get something to do on their own. One of the things that has been rumoured that directly after Brexit, there would be a need for the EU to sort of send a very clear message to Britain, sort of punish Britain in a way. When would that first start to emerge, do you think, this idea that, you know, OK, you are now the naughty kids? Almost immediately. Almost immediately. I mean, it, it's the same thing that happened uh, with the Scottish referendum, where Spain in particular could not allow Scotland to be treated well and rejoin the EU very quickly because... Catalonia would do the same thing. They are panicked. These are mainstream status quo leaders. They do not want these things to happen in their country for their own political survival. So the first thing they would do, and we've heard this, it's not just rumors. I've talked to French and German officials about this. They want to make it very tough for Britain to get anything out of the renegotiation. And I think the treatment of Cameron, particularly as soon as he says Article 50 in the, in the treaties, which is we're leaving, they're going to push him out of the room. He doesn't get to participate in the negotiations. The 28 decide their own position on their own. So I think you get Britain being treated as the bad boy almost immediately. Boris though, not David Well, Cameron. yes, whoever, yeah. Boris or, or, or whoever becomes the next Prime Minister, absolutely. Just very briefly before we move on to the further aftermath, George, there's a big question at the moment, would Article 50 be engaged? This is the process in the Lisbon Treaty for leaving the EU. Now, there's on the one hand the argument that David Cameron would have to do this. He's got a mandate from the country. On the other hand, a lot of Brexit campaigners say that would be reckless. What do you reckon? Well, David Cameron said he would implement Article 50 immediately after the vote. I think that's very unlikely to happen. Firstly, as I said, because I think David Cameron will be already heading out of the exit door at number 10. And the second thing, as you say, is that the leaders of the Leave campaign, particularly Michael Gove, have said they don't want to trigger Article 50. They don't want to start the clock ticking on Britain's exit. They want to take time. Michael Gove's talked about this being an evolution rather than a revolution and proposed the other week, other day that Britain could still be an EU member in 2020. Yeah. Now, I think things can move a lot more quickly than that, both in terms of British domestic politics, but also in terms of the EU wanting to make a clean break as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, it's very similar to what happened with Greece. Uh, I think Tsipras in particular said, well, you know, if I threaten to leave, if I have a referendum and, and we say, no, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get a better deal. That didn't happen. As a matter of fact, he got a worse deal. So I think there's this assumption here that you know, negotiating leverage, that an out isn't really an out. But I don't think you get that response in Brussels. I think they would treat it very, very badly. I think. I mean, I, I think there's a there's a trade-off. There's the, the view that you have to wait because if you start the clock ticking, two years isn't long enough. But there's the alternative view that uncertainty is bad for the point. economy, and it's difficult. So it means yeah. that both scenarios that they aren't perfect. So it's yeah. not clear mm. which way is, is the way that will go. And that's mm. very much what business is saying as well. I mean, what they're worried about whether they're 
worried about leave or worried about staying, what they don't like is uncertainty. And the, the quicker, I mean, businesses have said what's good about the 24th of June is at least the outcome of the vote mm. is clear. You know, one element of the uncertainty has gone away. But if we vote to leave, obviously, I think the quicker the parameters of the divorce become clear, the happier business will be. Mm. So that's our picture of the immediate future, which is nice and cheery there. <laughs> um, let's move on to what might happen after that, after people have become used to the idea of Brexit and Britain picks itself up from this initial shock. Even the most optimistic campaigners admit that those first two years or so would be a pretty bumpy ride. Sarah, where do you think British business would be in, say, five to ten years' time after Brexit? Well, one of the very striking things for me in my reporting is that talking to businesses, even the most, the largest, most pro-Remain businesses in the FTSE 100, if you say to them what's happening in five years' time is everything doom and gloom, you get the opposite response. I mean, even those businesses that are very unhappy at the prospect of the uncertainty that a Brexit vote would bring do believe that will we still be trading with the EU in five years' time? Yes, we will. The conditions under which we are trading with the EU may be a little more difficult, they may be a little more costly, but you know we're not going to stop trading with the EU or indeed with the rest of the world even if by that time we have actually left the EU the whole debate of course is over what kind of tariff structure would exist once we had left the EU. And that does affect a number of companies, but really not the majority of UK companies. I mean, we are still an economy which has a large domestic economy where we trade within the country. Of course, if you are Siemens and you are part of a global supply chain, which at the moment has a very significant presence in the UK, and their CEO, indeed, Jürgen Meyer, has been very vociferous about this, you are less likely to invest in that global supply chain. But, as the Leave campaigners would argue, in five years' time, will we have some sort of deal with the EU? Will we have some sort of deal possibly with India, with China, with the US? That is also likely. And the pro-Leave business people, you know, the predominant argument is less regulation, more control, more money within the UK economy. And they see that as a very positive environment for trade. So, Chris, there's been a lot of post-Brexit models proposed for Britain after we begin to pick ourselves up here. You know, do you think Norway, Switzerland, Canada, Albania, which one do you think would be the one you could see Britain most being like when it tries to get that deal Sarah was talking about? If you'd asked me a year ago, and I think I wrote it so you can check on this, I would have said that Norway would have been the most likely outcome or something close to Norway because making changes is difficult. And if you gain something, you probably lose something in another area. So I always assumed that we'd spend a lot of time negotiating pretty much the same relationship we've got today, but in a slightly different form. I think the campaign has made that less likely. With the emphasis on free movement of people, it would be very, very difficult to say to the British public, in this referendum, we campaigned on immigration, you voted on immigration, and now we're going to keep free movement. Mm. So I think that the sort of EEA or Norway option is pretty much, it'd be very, very difficult, even though there might be a majority in the House of Commons in favour of that. In which case, and I think the most likely outcome is you get some sort of free trade deal in goods because that's relatively straightforward and there's lots of international means of doing that. Services and agriculture, extremely difficult. And I would say in five years' time, we wouldn't have any deal in those two areas and there might be still a prospect of no deal to come. And what would you say the general shape and structure of the economy would be like? You know, because there's been a lot of predictions from the IFS, Treasury and what have you about what it might be look like. You know, do you think it would begin to move back into growth again or...? 
Well, I, I'm not suggesting necessarily we would be out of growth or in a recession, certainly not for five years. I think that would be going far too far, and the Treasury certainly themselves have not predicted that. But the costs and where it is worse in most likely than alternative outcomes is because you have uncertainty and you also have to restructure your economy to whatever the new circumstances are and restructuring an economy loses money. So in the long term, very, very long term, we're not saying Britain will be impoverished, but getting there is very difficult and there's probably a permanent cost to that. And that permanent cost relative to what you otherwise would be, people are estimating in region of 2 to 9%. So it's not, say, you know, over 30 years. So we're sort of talking 0.3% a year, sort of something like that. So it's not saying the economy is going to be completely wiped out. But these are big costs. When you think about that sort of cost has very big implications for the public finances. So that does mean we're not as rich as we otherwise would be. And therefore, we can't do some of the things that we are doing now. And that's where the public would see it. George, looking at politics here, just before we come on to what politics might look like after Brexit, both in terms of, you know, the Conservative Party may or not collapsing, this idea of the single market leaving it rejected by the House of Commons is extraordinary. A lot of pro-EU MPs have said there's a pro-EU majority in the House of Commons and they could have some kind of vote to keep the EU in the single market, which would sort of make the whole referendum look like a bit of a joke. It would, and the speculation around this just illustrates how complex the rest of this parliament's going to be, that you're going to have a victorious Eurosceptic Conservative Party, probably led by a Eurosceptic leader, perhaps Boris Johnson, trying to force through a pro-European House of Commons the reforms that Chris has just been talking about. However, I think the idea of the House of Commons insisting that Britain remains a member of the single market, with, as Chris was saying, the associated requirement that Britain has free movement of labour, I think that's completely out of the question. It's so completely undemocratic. I think one of the reasons why the story that was being reported today had so few MPs willing to put their name to it in public is because they know it would be a democratic outrage because the one thing we do know about this referendum is it's been about immigration and people want border controls. They don't, they're not prepared to accept the single market with free movement. So going back to that, you said we'd have a Eurosceptic leader, someone like Boris Johnson or Michael Gove as Prime Minister. What would the Labour and Tory parties look like a few years after Brexit? Well, making predictions in British politics is a, is a, is a fairly, uh, fairly dangerous thing at the moment. I think it's almost certain that if the Leave side wins, there will be a Eurosceptic Prime Minister in Number 10 Down Street by the end of this year. I don't think it's going to be Michael Gove. Michael Gove says he doesn't want the job, and I'm inclined to believe him. And that probably means that Boris Johnson is the hot favourite for the job, despite the fact, actually, that he's suspected by a number of people on the Tory right of being rather opportunist when it comes to this referendum, shall we say. But nevertheless, he's got massive popular appeal, and that's been demonstrated, I think, in this campaign, especially if they were to win. As far as the Labour Party is concerned, the job of the Labour Party basically is to exploit the turmoil that will result from this referendum, frankly, whichever way it goes. And in the medium term, I think that probably means you need a more effective leader than Jeremy Corbyn and someone who's better able to exploit it and look like a prime minister in waiting. And so that's going to confront the Labour Party with a difficult choice somewhere through this parliament. I don't think at the end of this parliament, if there's a leave vote, that either David Cameron or Jeremy Corbyn will be leading their party. Peter, what about the rest of the world now? What would Britain look like towards the Europe and Brussels? And, and also, what, where would the EU be in that situation as well, moving in that kind of five-year period after Brexit? Well, I just want to, because Sarah and I have discussed this quite a bit, and we always disagree on this. I actually think that the shock here 
would be in the medium term much bigger than people anticipate. It's not just the economic shock and the uncertainty shock, but you know, there's somewhere between 25 to 30 percent of UK laws that will have to be completely rewritten because they are now EU laws. So I think the chaos and the upheaval that was going to result, and I agree with Chris, I don't think there is a chance of any deal with the EU. I mean, I was in Brussels for six years. I went through three Canadian ambassadors, all who kept telling me they are imminently going to finish their deal with the EU. It never happened, still hasn't happened. I'm now number three has been there for a year. These things take years, if not decades, to get completed. So the, the head of the WTO has says, actually, the UK is going to have to renegotiate its, its relationship with the WTO because right now they're under the EU umbrella. So I think the amount of chaos that's going to ensue after this is going to be so significant. And I said this half jokingly when we first started talking about this, but I do believe it either under a Michael Gove scenario where, you know, oh, we're not going to do Article 50 immediately, or even if they're out, I wouldn't be surprised in five or 10 years, the UK is trying to get back in again because of the chaos and the, and the uncertainty that happens. So either they never actually leave or they leave and it's so bad they try to get back in. I don't think that is an unreal possibility. I think we need to give Sarah a chance to respond to that. <laughs> well, all I was going to say on the legislation front is that, I mean, the idea that legislation is rewritten, I don't believe is accurate. A lot of EU law has been translated, of course, into national legislation and has been cemented via case law. So in, for example, employment law, you know, has been tested in tribunals. It is not going to be unpicked. Where the legislative agendas will diverge is in future. Then the question is, okay, to trade with the EU, do we still need to meet the same regulatory requirements as EU businesses have to? And that is, you know, that's the moot point. But I don't believe that a third of UK law is going to have to well, be me, unpicked. But let me, because you raised the second point, which I kind of want to disagree with you on, which is <laughs> which is this this contention that somehow if Britain left, suddenly we'd be freed from all these EU regulation mm. and it would become this British Singapore, mm. European Singapore, yeah, is, which is yeah. what the Leave campaign, I must say that the more articulate members of the Leave campaign have been arguing. But do you see in this country an atmosphere? Does this, the Leave campaign really about you know, ending worker rights, you know, ending, you know, worker safety. I mean, all these things, suddenly Westminster has become a, yeah. a regulation-free political environment. I just don't buy that. I don't buy that suddenly we're going to come to Singapore. No, here. but I think there's a focus in this debate on employment-related regulation, which is not actually what a lot of companies are talking about. Mm. What they're talking about is product regulation, health and safety regulations around products. Now, a lot of business people who are pro-leave have said a lot of these standards are international now. They're not EU. On employment, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, brave will be the Prime Minister, whoever he or indeed she is, who stands up and says, right, we're going to reduce maternity leave and we're going to reduce paternity leave and we're going to reduce protection for employees. However, I think the question is, how much liberty would we have to devise our own regulation and indeed legislation whilst continuing to have a beneficial trading relationship with Europe? I say to Bing George on that point there. One of the strange things about this campaign is how little the Leave campaign have talked about regulation, actually. Mm. They recognise it's not a good look to have right-wing conservative ministers talking about taking away people's rights or indeed tampering with EU environmental regulations. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange kind of dynamic of this campaign that the people who drove the demand for the referendum in the first place were libertarian, conservative, sovereigntists who believed you know, Britain becoming a sort of light-touch regime, offshore, Singapore-type country. But they realised that had no traction at all with the vast majority of people who were likely to vote Leave. And as a consequence, they've had to focus the campaign on immigration, which, frankly, a lot of these people would be quite happy to see free, yeah, pretty yeah. free immigration. I'm just going to add a few more questions in for a bonus round here. <laughs> um, Sarah, do you think that Brexit business leaders are being overly optimistic here, that we've talked about, you know, the business opinion is clearly split on whether it should remain or in here, but those who are campaigning for us to leave, are they just painting this future that's never actually going to exist? 
I don't believe so. But as George was just saying, I mean, there are two very interesting strands in the Leave campaign. There is this sort of libertarian side, which believes in free trade agreements with everywhere, you know, wants to have an open Britain with indeed open borders. And then the other strand in that same campaign, which is little England and more on the sort of Nigel Farage side and I think it will be very interesting if we do vote to leave which side wins because obviously the business environment after a Brexit would be incredibly dependent on which of those scenarios actually comes out. I mean I think what's very interesting is that there is a split in the business community. There really is not a monolithic voice in the business community on this whole topic but one distinction that you can make is that on the whole more big listed businesses are pro-Remain than small entrepreneurial or family-owned businesses. There is a greater proportion of those businesses, although certainly not an overwhelming majority, who are pro-Brexit. And I think that does reflect, to some extent, the discussion we've been having here between the short term and the long term. If you are a FTSE 100 CEO, your perspective is, what, three to five years, maybe? Your tenure is likely to be five to eight years, something like that. You mind about your share price going, you mind about stock market uncertainty, you mind about volatility in sterling. All these things make your life and your legacy more likely to be damaged. If you are an entrepreneur or a family-owned business, and a lot of these business people have spoken to me in this way, you have perhaps a longer-term perspective about what kind of business environment or indeed, more importantly, political environment you're leaving for your children. Very briefly, Chris, shouldn't boards, shouldn't the chairman of these companies step in as, as they've got the guardian of the long-term of these FTSE 100? Shouldn't they just say to their chief executives, if that's really true, what's happening to boards? You know, Why are they not saying, leave's great then? Well, I think there's, I mean, if you are a FTSE 100 board, you don't on the whole believe that leave is great. You believe leave would be bad. You know, if you are a multinational FTSE 100 company, you're trading for a start, you're exporting, you tend to have global supply chains, you're very linked into the whole current status quo, and it would be very dangerous and damaging for you if we left. And finally, for our last question to you all, we're just two weeks out to the day we're recording this. What do we think is going to happen? Peter. I once had an editor who said, if you're going to make a prediction, make it bold, because if you're right, everyone thinks you're brilliant. If you're wrong, no one remembers. So I'm going to say remain by a lot, almost 10 points, I would say. Sarah? Yes, my expectations are far less bold than Peter's, (laughs) as as is often the case. I believe it will be very close. If I had to put my hand on my heart and say which side will win, I think Remain will win. But I think just as in the general election, there are a lot of people who are not telling pollsters that they're going to vote to leave. George? Well, the passion is all on the Leave side. But in the last two weeks of the campaign, I think there are several factors which will tend to swell support for Remain. Status quo, fear of the unknown... And the question about whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of David Cameron, Jeremy Corbyn, Barack, Barack Obama, Obama, Christine Lagarde, yeah, Mark Carney? Or do you want to be on the side of Michael Gove, Ian Duncan Smith and Boris Johnson? So I think I'm going to go with something like Peter. I still think around 55-45 for in. And Chris? Well, I think there's an equally large undercurrent of sticking it to the man out there. And I'm so I worry that Leave might win. And so I'm going to be different. I'm going to say a very, very narrow leave win there we go so we'll come back to those and see if you're all right (laughs) that's it for this week's episode you can continue to follow all of the ft's brexit coverage online in print and everywhere else thank you very much to sarah peter george and chris for joining me we'll be back next week thank you for listening if you enjoyed listening to this podcast you might like to try our world weekly podcast which is presented by me gideon rachman the ft's chief foreign policy commentator 
Each week, I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 